This is Ian Hartley. I'm Warren Kay. And I am Sasha Steenbergen. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. So as we continue on this journey through the book of Genesis, last podcast, we talked about Abram and Lot and how they made a choice to separate and Lot went down onto the plain. Abram stayed up in the hill country. And so then now we move to chapter 14 and discover uh, what happens next in their journey. Sasha, Mm -hmm. why don't you start us off with verse one? Sounds good. About this time, war broke out in the region. King Amraphel of Nimrod, of Babylonian King Arioch of Alasar, King Kedarleomar of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim, other nations to Israel. They fought against the king of Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adam, Adam, and King Shemeber of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, also called Zor. So, it's quite a mouthful of names, isn't it? It is. I'm still reeling. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon my butchering of these names. So, let's just summarize it and say four kings from the north. Uh, come down to punish the five kings uh, that live near the Dead Sea in the plain of Shinar, which was a very productive area. Um, and we talked about this previously, how uh, that this area has changed in terms of climate and resources. And it isn't like it used to be. So these four kings are coming down Uh, uh, as it will transpire in the story, to punish these five kings uh, where Lot lives because they haven't been paying their tribute. Mm. And I was just going to add, we have this really lovely map that Ian has uh, displayed on the screen for us, actually, so we can see this. If you're on the YouTube channel, then you can actually see this in the flesh. So um, having a look at the map, here are the four kings joining forces and coming down on the King's Highway um, to um, reach the Dead Sea. And these five uh, cities are on the east side of the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're ready to move on in our story. This second group of kings joined forces in Siddim Valley, that is the Valley of the Dead Sea. For the twelve for twelve years they had been subject to King Kedadolomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled against him. One year later, Kedileomar and his allies arrived and defeated the Raphites of Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzites of Ham, the Emites of Shavakiriatha 
Ephaim, and the Horites of, at Mount Seir, as far as El Paran at the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Emishpat, Emishpat, now called Kadesh, and conquered all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites living in the Hazazon Tamar. Okay, so just looking at the map again, they're coming down here and they're plundering and conquering all the tribes that live down here. And now they're getting down here. Uh, and then they will go right down to what's called Eilat today um, on the Gulf of Aqaba. And then they'll circle around, go west and north and go back up all the way. And uh, I don't want to get ahead of the story, just so we have perspective there. And how long do you figure this whole journey took? Oh, uh, you know, travel was slow, and this could have taken them a year to accomplish this punitive raid and mm. everything else that was going on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, we can read on. Um, so starting at verse 8. Yes. Then the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, and Zeboim, and Bela, also called Zor, prepared for battle in the Valley of the Dead Sea. They fought against the king Ketalomar of Elam and King Tidal of Goyim, King Amorphel of Babylonia and King Ariok of Elazar, four kings against five. As it happened, the Valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits. And as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the tar pits while the rest escaped into the mountains. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. Okay, we need to read verse 13. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives, Eskol and Anar, were Abram's allies. Eskol and Anar went with Abram, or Aram. So this is the first time um, that uh, the word Hebrew is used uh, in the Bible. Hmm. You notice verse 13, it says, Abram the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. um, he's described, uh, Abram is described as Avram Halivri, uh, which means Abram the Hebrew, which translates literally as Abram, the one who stands on the other side. Hmm. So this might refer to his origins from the other side of the Euphrates River. Abiru is also considered a synonym by some scholars, while other uh, scholars deny any relationship. Um, and the word Jew uh, comes from um, the word Judah. And it's really just... Uh, uh, a, uh, a derivative from the word Judah. 
Mm. So um, we read on in verse 14. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Kedileomar's army until he caught up with them at Dan. So I'm just going to uh, go refer to the map. Uh, Abram's living here at the Oaks of Mamre. Mm. Um, that is just... Uh, it's not quite at the northern end of the Dead Sea, if you look on the map. Mm -hmm. And now he pursues these raiders and catches up with them at Dan, which is pretty much the northern end of Israel. So do you, uh, yeah, okay. I see, yeah. I'm just catching up in the story. <laughs> so we now come to a bit of a conundrum. You've got four kings that have come down with a raiding party, and mm -hmm. Abraham is going to pursue them with just over 300 men. Mm -hmm. And uh, you sort of imagine there were a few, there were thousands of soldiers in this raiding party from the north. I mean, generally, you, you think of armies, you don't think in terms of hundreds, but thousands of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Um, we've got a few options here. We can say that the invading armies uh, were small in number two, uh, or we can say that, you remember the story of Gideon? Uh, he went with 300 men and they chased off thousands of invaders from the east side of the, the Jordan River. Mm -hmm. Or we can think of secular stories, um, the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans defended the narrow pass uh, from anywhere between 100,000 and 2.6 million Persian troops. Mm. Um, of course, this is one of the great heroic tales uh, in history uh, of how the Spartans were able to uh, take on this massive force. When when Joshua crossed the Jordan River, there were 31 tribes in the land. The Hebrews regarded them as wicked, lesser people who needed to be destroyed. When Abram's descendants, uh, when Abram's descendant, his son, needs a wife, he sends for one from the north. So <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is that the Hebrews sort of regard themselves as a superior group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to stick with each other and not intermarry with the local yokel. So another possibility is that 318 is not an accurate figure. You know, in, in Hebrew numbering, uh, there are no numerics. Like we have symbols for one, two, three, up to nine and zero. The the Hebrews don't have that and the Romans didn't have it. So on many clock faces, you see uh, Roman alphas. Mm -hmm. You know, they use I or L and X and V uh, to indicate the numbers, all right? So you have the same problem with uh, he Hebrew. They don't have numerics, so they actually use 
uh, alphabetical symbols. Mm. So the first nine alphabetical symbols represent the first nine numerals. And then the 10 to 18 alphas represent tens. And the letters 19 to 22 cover the first four hundreds. So this is where the idea of working out the value of a name comes in. Mm. And the most famous one is that the number of the beast is 666. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a common practice. Uh, so, for instance, Abraham's servant's name is Eliezer. And you can add up his uh, the numbers of his name, um, and you get exactly 318. Now, that's probably just a coincidence, or it may be significant. It's just interesting. You, you don't get all this uh, when you're reading a translation. Mm -hmm. but it, it's all there in the original language. Fascinating. So <clears throat> I want to give you as probably the most glaring example of a number problem is found in 1 Samuel 6.19. So I'm going to ask Warren if he'll read that in the King James Version. Oh. And, and Sasha, if you can read it in almost any other version. Okay. So we'll start with the King James Version. So 1 Samuel 6 verse 19. And he smote the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Yeah, so let's be accurate. How many people were slaughtered? Well, 50,000 plus three score would be 60 and 10, so 70. 3,000, no, 50,000 and 70 men. 50,000 and 70. Okay. Now read yours, Sasha. But the Lord killed 70 men from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark. No. What are you going to do with that? One translation says 50,070, and another translation says 70. I mean, this is a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. So I have a, a note here uh, from the New Living Translation. It says a few Hebrew manuscripts read 70 men. Most Hebrew manuscripts read 70 men, 50,000 men. And their suggestion is that perhaps the text should be understood to read, the Lord killed 70 men and 50 oxen. Oh. Like, this is a serious translation, which <clears throat> they look at the Hebrew and they say, this is actually a possibility. That that's what was meant. Now, I I'm going what, to yeah, I think what ahead. it means is that they really don't know how many people were killed. No, that's the truth of the matter. Yeah, And this yeah. is the, the problem with Hebrew uh, quantities in the Bible. Mm -hmm. and, and this is not uh, because you're an unbeliever. This is simply recognizing the problem that we have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, uh, with the Exodus account, it says there were 600,000 men. 
Right. Now, there might have been that many, but I wouldn't put my head on a block knowing what I do now mm. about the Hebrew numbering system. Yeah. Right. When, when you can get a difference between 50,070 <laughs> and 70, you got to shake your head and say, uh, uh, be humble about uh, being too dogmatic about how many there actually were. Mm -hmm. So we're on verse 15. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Kedileomer's army fled, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew, Lot, with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So I want to remind you of the relationship between Abram and Lot. Um, uh, Lot is actually Abram's heir in his thinking mm. because he has no children. So it's important for him to go and rescue his heir. Abram's a clever strategist. Um, he's remembered as a hero of the Hebrews. This is the last recorded interaction between Abram and Lot. 500 years later, the Israelites leave Egypt and travel east of the Jordan River. And the descendants of Lot, the Edomites and Moabites, attack them. And there is war between them. It is a sad ending to the parting of Abram and Lot over land. You know, you, you might uh, uh, think I'm a bit of a choleric, and I am. But you you have this relationship, this wonderful relationship between Abram and Lot. And 500 years later, the descendants of these two best friends are at suicidal war with each other. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> in my short life, I've had this repeated personally, is that I've been very good friends with somebody and then with the passage of time, that friendship deteriorates into, well, I don't, we never see each other anymore. We never talk to each other. And sometimes there's even hostility. Of course, you two are such nice people. This has never happened to you. So <laughs> that's, that's why I'm sharing it with you. Well, and because we haven't lived nearly as long as you. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Good. <laughs> well, when you've lived a few more years, you'll recognize the truth of what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. So uh, we now change tack, uh, and we another interesting personality is introduced into the story. We're on verse 17. After Abram returned from his victory over Kedileomar, and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God, Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. So this, uh, this uh, personality person this just appears out of nowhere. It says king of Salem. Salem means peace sort of a synonym for shalom, mm -hmm. salem, 
Um, and some think that because of that title, King of Salem, uh, that he was the ruler in what would later become Jerusalem. It's also indicated that he's a priest of God Most High. So he's a king and a priest. Yes. And this is why in the book of Hebrews, it says that uh, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Levi, because the Levites were only priests. They weren't the kings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this opens up all sorts of interesting uh, possibilities. Is Because we only have the history of Abram, later called Abraham, we think that God, we just assume that God chose one person on the earth to be his friend. But here you find uh, uh, somebody who just shows up who's also God's friend. And we also know about Jethro the Midianite. <clears throat> Moses married his daughter. And he was also a priest of God. So I want to uh, think a little bit wider. If you read the enlightened way that the Buddha wrote, it really parallels the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. So um, it seems to me quite plausible that God appeared to the Buddha and inspired him. And who knows how many other men and women on the earth that God has spoken to and that we don't recognize or we don't have a record. Mm -hmm. You know, that's so true because when you look at the biblical story, God goes to great lengths to reach out to people like Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man in the world at the time. And and so, yeah, it, it's it's very likely that he has been reaching out to people all around the world forever. Yeah. So we have the wise men from the East that mm. come looking for uh, the baby that they were anticipating. We also have um, Elijah. Uh, he says to God, uh, I'm your only prophet left. And God says to him, cool it, man. I have 7,000 other prophets that you don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we, we don't. Uh, oh, we sort of get into this arrogant, minimalistic <laughs> I know. I love that picture. As soon as you started talking about, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment writings, I was like, oh, I hope he says something that is affirming. And you did. And you just completely made it this picture of that. Of course, we are all God's children across this entire globe throughout all of history. And so it's so inclusive. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And um, so Jesus has something to say about this. And uh, one of you will read John ten sixteen. And I have another sheep that, that are not, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So notice Jesus already has these sheep although they have not heard his voice. They belong to him, 
but they do not know yet that they belong to him. Mm -hmm. they, but they will recognize his voice mm -hmm. when they hear it. And Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So um, what the psalmist is doing, he's saying, listen, God is not exclusive. You know, it's true the Levites are his priests, but there are other people also functioning as, as God's priests. Mm. And Hebrews 7. Okay. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though there also are descendants from Abraham. Thank you. So saying that Melchizedek has no genealogy does not mean, uh, means that, sorry, means that we do not know who his parents or descendants were. Uh, Absalom, interestingly enough, one of David's sons, built a monument to himself because he had no son to be remembered by. Some suggest that this Melchizedek is actually Shem, who outlived Abram, uh, who had only one child who survived him and may not have followed Shem's loyalty to God, so he passes his blessing on to Abram. Shem is 10 generations before Abram, and so he gives him 10% to carry on the line. I bet you've never heard that before. No, I haven't. I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. How does he give an inheritance to someone that was 10 generations after him? So we know from the genealogy that Shem was still alive. He actually outlived Abram. Okay, yeah. And we have no record of any interaction between them, except if Melchizedek was actually Shem. This is very mind-expanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're suggesting that Melchizedek is Shem. Well, I'm giving you that as an option. Yeah. Oh. All right, I'll need to ponder that. That would take him right back to um, Noah. Otherwise, you have Shem is alive on the earth, and Abram uh, has no connection with him which would be strange. So now we read verse 19 of Genesis 17, 14. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, 
and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. So we usually use this um, statement as uh, uh, justification for the tithe being 10% of your income. But it may have been uh, that uh, Shem was 10 generations before Abram, mm -hmm. and that's why 10% was used. Oh. I'm not arguing against tithing. Mm -hmm. All I'm saying, giving you is a possible origin for why he gave 10%. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, when you realize these kings came down and they, they took plunder from all these people that they had conquered, and then Abram took their plunder, uh, he would have he really enlarged his uh, resources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was a uh, good way of increasing your wealth mm -hmm. to go on a raiding party. So it's really interesting if you look at what uh, this blessing that Melchizedek bestows on Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, and blessed be God most high. That's really interesting that he blesses both Abram and God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't help it, but remind you that the Lord's Prayer, the first half is blessing God. Mm -hmm. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. That's all about God. Yeah. And then he comes, Jesus comes to us and says, and you give us our daily bread and you forgive us our sins and you defend us from the evil one and you protect us from temptation. Like you have the same uh, structure for the blessing. Mm -hmm. so let's talk about this word. Bless indicates contentment, which is more than happiness. Uh, Jesus will use the word joy. Uh, joy is more than happiness. It includes happiness, but it's more than that. You can be joyful uh, with unhappiness because of your perspective in life. God suffers discontent with wickedness, but he, he still blesses us. Bless literally means to say good words. And Jesus is the ultimate blessing from God to us. We are content when we believe the good words Jesus has spoken to us. Mm -hmm. Blessing is often used to mean luck. I'm blessed to be living in Canada. It means I'm lucky to live in Canada. Mm -hmm. Now, this is quite important because if you say, I'm blessed to live in Canada, you're attributing this to God. And what are you attributing uh, for the people who live in third world countries which are poverty stricken. Mm. Are you saying that they are cursed by God? Mm. No. No, I wouldn't so, want to say that. So that's why I shy away from saying I'm blessed to live in Canada. I say I'm lucky to live in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, Hebrew has two words for blessing and can be uh, acknowledging the source. Uh, it can be the creator or the maker. 
um, you blessing God like uh, Melchizedek did, uh, or it can mean me blessing you, which means I like what you're doing and hope it will continue in the right way. To defend the victims of evil is to bless them. The father's blessing for his child was to bestow position and power in word, which meant it would happen because of the power of words. So we, we've kind of lost this, but uh, every Hebrew child wanted to be blessed by their father before he died, mm. which meant that the father would say good words to them about their future. Well, and that's that's very, um, you know, lived out in, in Jacob gathering his sons and blessing them all uh, at, before he dies. We are on verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten. And I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Anair, Eskal, and Mamre. So this speech cements the nobility of Abram. While it's true that Abram did not want to be associated with the wickedness of the five cities of the plain, um, these people had a law that helping the poor was a crime. And the poor could be abused. That is why the angels who visited Sodom were to be abused. Uh, hmm. And so Ab Abram goes against the custom of these cities of the plain. And he also does not accept, sorry, Abram did accept loot from the king of Pharaoh and Abimelech. If you remember when he lied about his wife, hmm. they both sent him away and gave him possessions. Uh, hmm. to encourage him not to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so Abraham has his faults. Yeah, he, he lies about his wife. He, he listens to his wife and is unkind to Hagar. Um, he thinks he can sacrifice his son to gain God's favor. Um, but he is a noble man. He resists the temptation uh, to greed. Uh, in this instance. So when it says here, I'm just trying to follow this. Um, so the king of Sodom, verse 21, said to Abram, give back my people who were captured. So he's saying, let the people go that, you, that you've captured, uh, but you can keep the plunder. And he's and so he doesn't keep the plunder. So who where does that plunder go? Well, he returns what they had taken from Sodom to Sodom. Okay. Yeah, because they because they would have gone back to inhabit the land that they had been taken from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But he uh, Abram would have been enriched because those four kings that came from the north, they did a whole circuit of plundering. Mm -hmm. 
And so he's only returning to Sodom what was taken from Sodom. He's still got the rest of the plunder that he doesn't return. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So Abram had a very interesting life. Yeah. There weren't many boring moments, apparently, from all the stories. No, no. True. When I first came to Canada, people used to say to me, uh, what's it like living in Canada? And I would say, boring. <laughs> My house hasn't been burgled. My car hasn't been hijacked. <laughs> so um, Grateful not, for boring. Yeah, it's nice to be bored. Yeah. Yeah, in that aspect. Let's pray together, dear God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us over the millennia and not leaving us as we deserved after walking out on you. Um, thank you for these instances of uh, are you revealing yourself to people that we know about and we must extrapolate and recognize that there are many people that you have revealed yourself to, that we know nothing about. And we thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us at all times in this earth's history. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, and you came and lived with us, knowing full well how we treat you. But it didn't stop you living with us in your great love for us. You're wonderful. And we bless you together with Melchizedek today. Blessed be God, the Most High. find the recording of our podcast on our website uh, as well as the PDF document that we've been using so you can follow along or at least see all the passages and so that website is rediscoveringgod.ca and on there there is the, um, the, the PDF document the uh, link for the podcast as well as our YouTube link. We are now on YouTube. So if you want to see us live, then you can go and watch it on YouTube. Wonderful, and we'd also love to invite you to our Monday evening Zoom discussion where Ian and Warren lead us out. And um, we are currently going through the podcast uh, where we get to have discussion and really dive in a little deeper and get our, um, our, our most pressing questions answered. Um, it's a really wonderful time of fellowship and connection with the group. Um, we share in community and resources as well. We'd really love to have you join us. We're going to be meeting um, at 6.30 Mountain Standard Time. Uh, you just add in the link 403-506-9201. We'd love to see you. And if you'd like to connect with us, 
you can reach us at rediscoveringgod2020 at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you and know how this journey of rediscovering the God that Jesus knew is changing your life.